Do you know that certain peptides can benefit those with Graves' disease and Hashimoto's? If you want to learn more about how peptides can help with thyroid autoimmunity and other chronic conditions, then you'll want to check out the brand new Peptide Summit hosted by Dr. Jenny Flagar. In fact, peptides play a huge role in helping Dr. Jenny overcome her Hashimoto's condition. To register for the free Peptide Summit, visit SaveMyThyroid.com forward slash peptides. Thank you for joining me on the Save My Thyroid podcast, where I help people save their thyroid and regain their health. My name is Dr. Eric Osansky, and if you have hyperthyroidism, then you will especially benefit from these episodes. But if you have hypothyroidism or Hashimoto's thyroiditis, you will also find many of the episodes to be valuable, including this one, where I interviewed Dr. Rika Milanovic-Galbraith about the genetics of detoxification. Dr. Rika actually discussed a lot more than this, as she also discussed oxidative stress, what type of support someone should take if they don't have a gallbladder, and she also shared a few other valuable gems. Please make sure you check out the post-episode chat after the outro music, as I'll give my opinion as to whether or not I could have prevented Graves' disease from developing if I had made some diet and lifestyle changes early in my life. And with that being said, here's my interview with Dr. Rika. Welcome to the Save My Thyroid podcast, hosted by Dr. Eric Osansky. To stay up to date on the latest thyroid health-related topics, visit SaveMyThyroid.com. The following discussion is for educational purposes only and is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease. Please do not apply any of this information without first speaking with your doctor. Now let's head to the show. All right. With me, I have Dr. Rika Milanovic-Galbraith, and we are going to be chatting about the genetics of detoxification. So I am going to dive into Dr. Rika's bio. She is a functional medicine MD certified by the Institute for Functional Medicine. She's an international speaker and mentor to practitioners, as well as a high-performance coach. She helps high-performing leaders, celebrities, entrepreneurs, and CEOs regain their energy so that they can increase their performance, productivity, and impact. And she has expertise in anti-aging medicine, nutrigenomics, bioidentical hormone replacement therapy, and peptides. She sees patients at the clinic she founded, Simply Health Institute outside of Chicago, Illinois, as well as leads group online programs. And thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Rika. Thank you, Dr. Eriks. So nice to join you here today and your lovely audience. Yeah, look forward to chatting with you about genetics, specifically genetics related to detoxification. So before we start with that, would you mind just diving a little bit into your background and how you started really becoming interested in the genetics? Yeah, so really it had to do with it was partly it was my journey and partly it was others' journey. So, you know, like many of us in the field, I've had my own journey and health issues. And what I wish I would have known was how deep those issues went. And so mine did start with thyroid disorder, Hashimoto's. And I know that's a large portion of your population, but I just really wish I had known and someone would have said, it's not your thyroid. So it really was the dysfunctional thyroid, but it was everything leading up to it that wasn't identified by myself because it took me you know, the better part of half of a decade to train in all these things. And it was finding that 80% of the patients I could get better with a usual, what we call functional medicine approach. And then you had this 20% residual, like how do you get those people better that were maybe a little bit sicker and not responding to usual means. And I kept doing the deep dive and it led me to the road of nutritional genetics or nutrigenetics. 
just did studied under a variety of people. And with the first approach, I got even bigger layer of people better and ended up with an autism reversal. I know when I say this, I say this cautiously, people say, oh, that's incredulous. Like, are you telling the truth? Well, I'm not the first person and people really need to know that you can get reversal. And of course it didn't happen overnight. And then it really led me into looking at more and more and more. And the irony of it, Dr. Eric, is that I looked at everyone else's genetics but mine. I mean, isn't that the irony of it? Although I did a really good job with what we call the epigenetics. And so that's having your diet and lifestyle influence whether a mutated gene actually is expressing. So we do have the power to turn off defective genes, but I didn't really understand all the ramifications. And I wish I would have, it would have saved me two decades long of intermittently feeling very, very unwell and ultimately culminating into an issue where my liver enzymes were soaring and they're entertaining a second autoimmune disease. And it really had to do with my underlying detox genetics that I wish I would have known from the first get-go that went from Hashimoto's to infertility, to vision losing migraines, to PMS, to that weight gain that comes. It's seemingly when you hit perimenopause to you name it. And then ultimately this near second autoimmune disease, I thought I had autoimmune hepatitis And that the statistics on that are that if you are not on steroids lifelong, the death rate is 30 to 50%. So it's very high. And I'm happy to say that by taking the approach I did, I never got that formal diagnosis, all the symptoms and numbers, the markers reversed, never ended up on steroids. And that was now over nine years ago. So. Wow. You said 30 to 50% if they don't take steroids. That's correct. Wow, that's extremely high. Well, of course, happy to hear that you were able to avoid the formal diagnosis and you know restore your health. And you also said that you were diagnosed at Hashimoto's then, correct? Yep, that was the first diagnosis. And it took about 10 years for me to actually get that diagnosis. So that's how long I was unwell. And here's the fear, and I'm sure some of your audience has seen this as you go to your doctor and you feel unwell, they do the labs. And I know because I was one of those doctors and they say, oh, your labs are normal or nothing's wrong, or perhaps you're depressed. And the worst outcome is that they suggest you're depressed and offer you an antidepressant. And that was my fear is being even a doctor. My labs were suddenly abnormal for, I used to check them all the time. And I said, well, I mean, they're not really totally normal, but I didn't know what I know now. And by the time I got the diagnosis, the endocrinologist was just a little bit more savvy And even though he was more traditionally allopathic, he kind of really was switched on to following patterns. And he said, you've had this for 10 years. Look at these antibody levels. And it was really shocking, the contrast of how little sleep I needed. So I was going from 10 to 12 hours back to a normal sleep schedule and how my energy just really soared. So as you said, a lot of the audience consists of Hashimoto's as well as Graves' disease. So can you tie in like detoxification with thyroid health? Because I'm sure there might be some listening and just not really understanding like how this all relates. And I could also give my input, my feedback if you'd like to, but I'd like to hear, you know, what you have to say as far as a relationship. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd love to have that banter. That's what makes these interviews so much fun. I'd be curious to hear your input. So as you know, thyroid disorder is on the rise, both Hashimoto's and Graves, and you have to say why. And there is a strong correlation to exposure to environmental toxin. We'll just highlight some of the big ones. So perchlorate 
is found in contaminated groundwater. And that's the one of the ones I can measure. And even for people who filter their water, and they may feel like they have a good filtration system. So I'm talking more than just the filter out of your fridge, that's not going to cut it. And more than a Brita pitcher, that's not going to cut it either. And so I found high levels in people who are doing everything right. And then you have to back it down to, okay, if these are all water contaminants, we got to figure out a better water filtration system for you. And then even to things in the environment. So we classically think that the xenoestrogens like BPA and phthalates will affect your hormones, but it turns out they can also affect your thyroid. So what you put on your skin and clean your house with really does matter to even heavy metals. So all of these can take out the thyroid with a variety of different means and mechanisms. And so what I've gotten very good at and I'm passionate about, I was kind of that nerdy, geeky kid in high school and college, and I just thrived on, I learned all these pathways in biochemistry, but I didn't know how any of them really applied. I even, in fact, have all my notes from the 90s or gosh, it was the late 80s now. Wow. I'm dating myself when I took biochemistry. And now that I understand it, it's just so crystal clear to me, like what needs to happen to support first proper detoxification and things we need to be on the lookout for as clinicians, if someone is unwell and you can reverse engineer it, meaning that you can assume things based on symptoms and certain findings and labs. And then, you know, sometimes I like to look at the genetics. Yeah. Thanks for sharing with that. And yeah, I agree. Obviously the toxins can directly affect the thyroid. You mentioned perchlorate, you know, xenoestrogens. But as you also mentioned, it's not just about the thyroid. I mean, especially Hashimoto's graves, they're more immune system conditions. And so there's also plenty of evidence in the research that heavy metals and again, xenoestrogens and other environmental toxins can also be at least a contributing factor, if not a direct trigger when it comes to the autoimmune response. So Yeah. And I always say you have to remove all the triggers. And I look at about eight of them and toxins is one of the eight. But when I speak about detox, I'd love to segue into kind of the general about detox, what Mm -hmm. people should know. And then one of the areas that I've really found an interest in in called oxidative stress. Would that be okay to go on with the general? Sure. Yes. So general detox, as you know, we used to call it two phase, but it looks like there's three phases. And what people don't know is Here's my theory on the whole energy thing is that the majority of adults and even children, unfortunately, children are probably worse because their diets are just awful these days. If you're eating a standard American diet, they're protein malnourished and they're not getting the phytonutrients they need. And when you measure it, most adults are deficient in three to five vitamins and minerals and tops on the list are magnesium and B vitamins. So in phase one, that takes that chemical, whether it's an environmental toxin a medication et cetera, and breaks it down into a metabolite. I always learned it was more active and more toxic, but that requires B vitamins and amino acids. And these are the things people are deficient in and B vitamins get deplete when someone's stressed. So you start with someone who's behind the eight ball, they get stressed. And the last two years were put many of us to the test, right? Everyone had different levels of stress for a variety of reasons. So you, they get further deplete. And the interesting thing is that then toxins kind of play a role and take up energy in that our mitochondria are super sensitive to toxins because the DNA in our mitochondria are not protected in histones. So then you get the environmental toxins take it out and you less well 
produce energy. And so it's a combination of things. And then, so you don't have the vitamins and minerals to properly detox. And then your mitochondria, which make energy are taken out by these toxins. The second thing that is really high up on that list for that phase one is amino acids. That's a breakdown product of protein. And almost everyone that comes to my clinic is protein malnourished or has an inadequate protein intake for their weight for their activity level and for their age and disease status. So that's pretty profound. And then to go from phase two to phase three, and this is my hero's journey is, you know, they takes that metabolite and makes it water loving so we can pee, poo, or sweat it out. And one of the pathways, and there's several, is glutathione. And that's where I'm lacking two full genes for glutathione recycling. And the third remaining major recycling gene is defective. So I'm really behind the eight ball and producing it. And so the way to not make glutathione is to add stress to the mix or live unhealthy diet lifestyle. So there's ways to boost it. And so that's why I'm really careful. And I look at that and, you know, for me personally, I supplement, but I know my genetics and it's not the right thing for everyone to do. It just really depends on the whole story. So I caution people when I say that is that this was what I determined. So that's generals of detox. And one of the things in detox that will take out our body tissues is something called oxidative stress. And the way I like to explain this is oxidative stress is very similar to when you cut open an apple and it starts to brown as a result of exposure to the air. So it's the browning of our tissues, whether it's our thyroid and causing thyroid dysfunction, our brain causing some memory loss, our joints causing osteoarthritis. And so that's the area I've started to get passionate about is looking at what causes oxidative stress. And we usually think of that as free radicals and how do we clear those and what's needed in those pathways and processes. Yeah. And oxidative stress, well, like you said, the increased in environmental toxicants, obviously, you know, is a big factor in the increase in oxidative stress. But just, again, the autoimmune process as well. I think it's safe to say that anybody dealing with the autoimmune condition, whether it's Hashimoto's or Graves or MS or rheumatoid arthritis, has some degree of oxidative stress. So you said you're missing two of the genes related to glutathione, correct? Yep. Two of the genes. And so... When supplementing, if someone's missing the genes, I assume they could still take something like NAC that converts into glutathione, or would they have to take like a liposomal glutathione or acetylated glutathione? Yeah, or something like that? either or. It really depends. So then I then saw later kind of some data on the N-acetylcysteine can increase levels of cysteine and further lead to oxidative stress. So I'd say anyone who wants to just boost production, definitely NAC is the way to go. But if you've got known chronic issues. So I'm on a very small dose at all times. So small dose. And then that's what maintains me. And if I ever go through a period of where I know I'm going to be say an illness or, you know, get a viral illness, then I'll up that dose. So I'm pretty well versed at kind of turning mine on and off. And I've used NAC too before. I'll add that when there's an acute illness too, but I did not see benefit, but my patients have. So it just depends on where they fall in the spectrum. So mild, moderately unwell, probably just need to boost it with the epigenetics and the NAC would be just enough. And then if you know their genetics and you know they're depletes. So for all of my chronically sick patients, I've started to look at their genetics. And I say, this is what you need as we're getting you better. And this is what we would need to maintain you where I'd love to support you to mitigate that relapse, of course, with the whole mind-body diet lifestyle, the whole comprehensive approach. So it's not just supplementation. Yeah, agree. Diet also plays a big role. You could 
you know, eat cruciferous vegetables and other sulfur-based foods. But I guess if someone is really deficient, diet's still important, but that's where supplementation might be important. And how about IV glutathione? Are there indications where you ever refer people to get IV glutathione or Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Some people don't tolerate any glutathione. So some of my really, really sick patients don't tolerate any. And so you have to be really careful then to give them IV. And then for some people, IV is not the correct route. And so there's little innuendos with me. And I'm one of that subset that IV, it was really interesting. As I was learning the genetics, I was in between jobs. So as we're moving from Boston to Chicago, where we are now, And I thought, oh, you know, one of the benefits of the clinic I work at is that we have IV therapy and that's one of the perks of the job. And so I did IV vitamin C, which I found huge benefit for when I'm acutely sick, very, a large benefit that's helped me recover quickly. But I also did it with glutathione and I'm like, huh, I didn't get that boost. What happened? And then, so I had my genetics reviewed with another person that was in the field and they're like, well, this is why they kind of cancel each other out. You do far better. And I'm blanking on what that actual process was, but I was just really intrigued that IV may not be necessary for some people. It's not helpful. And so that's why, you know, I'd undergone, I think six weeks of therapy and then really didn't see a benefit. So I was just really trying to supercharge myself, but didn't see a difference. So. Okay. Now I'm glad you mentioned the IV glutathione, especially like some people not doing well, because it would be a bummer for someone to get it. And so it sounds like maybe they should try like the liposomal glutathione first. (laughs) And not to say that everybody should try that and then do IV glutathione. But if someone's considering IV glutathione, maybe try regular glutathione. And if they can't tolerate that, that's probably an indication they might not be a good fit for the IV glutathione. Yeah, yeah, correct. And same thing, if you're sensitive to a lot of things coming your way or inputs, then there's a high chance you're going to be sensitive to the glutathione. So always proceed with caution because I've had people, I always say sometimes in those who are chronically ill to go slow is to go fast. And it's really a hard concept for anyone who has ever been high performing to accept or follow. And there's nothing worse when we're on the road to recovery and someone goes through the steps at a rapid pace. And they're made to feel worse and worse and worse, but they don't stop. They push through. And then it's, I call it, it throws them under the bus. And that recovery for me and that client or patient takes almost twice as long as the original recovery. And so I really caution people to kind of pay attention to how their body's responding to things and to have that direct communication with me, how they're feeling. So they're given strict provisions on how to increase. All right. Then, so nutrients. So you spoke a little bit about nutrients and you also mentioned mitochondria And so that's probably a big way this ties into fatigue as well, just with the environmental toxins, you know, affecting the mitochondria, potentially causing mitochondrial damage. So if if you have the environmental toxins exposure and or nutrient depletion, you know, either one of those can have a negative effect on the mitochondria, those energy powerhouses of the cell, which lead to uh, fatigue, correct? That's correct. And then you just add in the everyday life stressors, which further deplete your nutrients. So it's kind of like this vicious cycle that can be hard to get out of. How about as far as the gut? Because also, I mean, all this is important, but the gut, obviously, if you don't have a healthy gut, that also could lead to nutrient deficiencies. You know, even the amino acids, you mentioned the protein, which I agree, you know, uh, people do need to eat sufficient protein. But also if someone has like low stomach acid or other gut issues too, they need to address that or else that could be a big problem when it comes to, you know, detoxification, supporting the detoxification pathways as well, correct? 
Correct. So you already mentioned the first way is that we absorb our vitamins and nutrients, the amino acids less well when you have dysbiosis or low production of stomach acid. So both. And so that puts people even further less well able to tolerate being exposed to toxic substances. And then ironically enough, I was kind of re-reviewing things with phase three detox that the dysbiosis will not allow you to do that phase three. So excreting it, transporting those toxins out of the body. So you have to really pay heedance and I do have a right, I call it the right order, my 3D protocol. So I do things in the right process so that, you know, if you go in and you detox someone from the get-go as the first starting point, you can make someone very, very sick. So it's never the first thing. And I always tell people a diet will detox you. And I had one woman in all these years who ate so terribly that when we put her on a healthy diet, she complained vehemently. So she was gently detoxing, but really felt the effects of it because she had never, ever provided herself with the right nutrients. So I think she was probably getting a backlog of those metabolites and not able to clear them as well. And so we had a back step. So even sometimes diet can, <laughs> but that was like the rare case scenario, but it's the right order too. I've seen people be made a lot worse if they're detoxed first and not with all the support systems in place. So really you need to make sure phase three is working, which makes sense. If you're constipated, you probably don't want to get aggressive when it comes to detoxification. Yeah, correct. So, you know, having the appropriate nutrients, having amino acids, making sure there's NAC glutathione, making sure that someone is sweating and hydrating and then having daily bowel movements. So yeah, you're right. And not being not constipated. I always laugh and I say, it's the only field we're talking about poop is kind of sexy (laughs) is our field, right? Yep. No problems. Talk about poop here and and to our patients. So Hey, this is Dr. Eric, and if you're looking to do everything you can to save your thyroid gland, in addition to listening to this podcast, there are a few different ways we can help you. First of all, I've written a book on hyperthyroidism called Natural Treatment Solutions for Hyperthyroidism and Graves' Disease, as well as a book called Hashimoto's Triggers, which of course is on Hashimoto's thyroiditis, and you can find both of these on Amazon as well as other websites where books are sold. Second, you could also join my Graves' Disease and Hashimoto's Healing Community by visiting AutoimmuneThyroidGroup.com. And finally, if you want to get personal help from me, you could visit the website WorkWithDrEric.com. Just to let you know, I only see a limited number of new patients each month, and I do require anyone interested to complete a brief online application before working with me. And now back to the show. Now, you said when you were giving your background that you had your gallbladder removed and, you know, which unfortunately happens to a lot of people. And so a couple of questions with that, I guess one question is if you take any support since you don't have a gallbladder, you know, whether it's bile acids or anything similar. And then also, do you have any tips to prevent someone? Like if someone's having gallstones and then their doctor saying that, you know, they need to remove the gallbladder, Again, not to say there's never a time and place for it to get removed, but if it's maybe in the earlier stages or middle stages and there's still hope, do you have any tips? I do. I do. And the backstory there is we were abroad and the only American surgeon that was there had left and we were returning to the same spot. And he had said to me when I was pregnant, I wouldn't operate on you here, non-pregnant, let alone pregnant. And he was pretty much the only what he felt in his mind, the only qualified surgeon. And I started to have symptoms right before we moved back. And ironically, I had an appointment with a naturopath and with the surgeons and I panicked because I thought, 
my God, what if I get into a situation where it's an acute gallbladder attack that's like a do or die? And he's telling me he doesn't trust the system or the process there. And so when you have the surgeon saying, oh, you have a gallbladder full of stones, get it out. And I wasn't trained like I am now. You're going to probably follow through. Mine was more of a worry of the what if. Had I had time, I probably would have done what I do now. And so knowing my genetics, we first want to ensure there's proper bile formation. And the first thing with that is ensuring that we have adequate choline and choline is a good source is the yolks of your eggs. Some people have difficulty absorbing choline and I'm in this mix. That's why I developed gallstone symptoms when I was pregnant because I wasn't absorbing the choline and pregnancy increases the need for choline. So I have a whole pre-pregnancy protocol where we do support choline a little bit more to meet the needs of the pregnancy. So that would have been my first port of call is to supplement with choline, either liquid or capsule form. And I still do do that. And then because your common bile duct, which is what remains, does produce a little bit of bile, but I augment and do bile acids or bile salts. So ox bile with every meal so that I absorb appropriately. And here's a, the kicker. I mean, even that was, took a little while going into functional medicine to understand that. Say, oh my gosh, I should be on this supplementation. And so from a genetic standpoint, that gene that governs that choline absorption is just for reference and for fun, P-E-M-T or the abbreviation for it. So I do have the mutation. And typically you'll see that those with the mutation experience symptoms when they're pregnant and in menopause. And so those are the two time periods. And I had a young lady brought to me by her mom and said, every woman in our family's had her gallbladder out. I want you to spare my daughter. And the daughter was a teenager. So we took a look at her genes and now she's on gentle supplementation. And we've talked about what you can do. So I'm on those two. Acute attacks can be kind of tricky. So For me, that was also going on at the time of when I had that whole liver flare and, you know, I just avoided the foods that would trigger it. So the caffeine, the alcohol, the onions, uh, even garlic, I think was a trigger for me. And so I backed off on the foods and things like beets. So kind of beet juice, beets themselves were very healing for me um, at the time. And I actually, this last time I've only had in like eight or nine years. And sadly with the surgery, I had my common bile duct injured and it closed off and that will make you sicker than anything because then it really escalates the backlog of everything of the bile of then the liver enzymes shoot up even higher. And I've had that duct open twice now. And again, before I was functional medicine. And so now that I am, I rarely get a flare and I know what my triggers were. And I had one probably like six months ago And you better bet your bottom dollar stress doesn't help that at all. And I thankfully had a lot of gut healing supplies with me. I travel with a little stash of stuff in case my family gets sick. And just by taking the ox file, the PC, I even had some colostrum, so which is your immunoglobulins and even just a good solid enzyme, it passed very quickly. So now I'm just super, super careful that I just try to kind of maintain that where you strive for a healthy diet lifestyle. For me, I strive 100% of the time because I want to hit 80 or 90. I'm really on board and doing well. I don't like to shoot for 80 because that means I'm going to hit 60 or 70. And so this way, you know, I have more resilience to things coming my way. And, you know, that's the whole approach. And even from some of my high performers is overscheduling, you know, overscheduling themselves and uh, really being clear on what my mission and goal are personally and professionally and 
um, sticking to that and then saying no more than I say yes. So I know that's a little off topic and not genetic, but I think there's that we are genetically wired when you're a high performer and you're, you know, busy and all that to just want to go, go, go and do, 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 but it's probably not the best thing for you. It's probably the first time I know when I was growing up, it became fashionable, like to go without sleep. It was like this badge of honor or something. And now I think it's just probably not a good health choice to make and it's fallen out of vogue. So thankfully in, in our circles, as you know, you know, sleep is prioritized and so is preserving your most precious asset, which is time, right? So you can never get it back. Yeah, no, I'm glad you share that. I mean, I haven't really looked into the research when it comes to like sleep and oxidative stress, but I know lack of sleep will cause inflammation in general, like higher CRP levels, I believe the research shows. So I imagine also oxidative stress plays a role in that too. So no, I think it all does tie together. Yeah, absolutely. Other things to know, like there's a level of oxidative stress that is going to be okay. We produce free radicals every time we make ATP and a small amount of that is super important because that's how we fight off the pathogens, the bugs we encounter, bacteria, viruses, whatever, but it needs to be in balance. So when it escalates and you need to be able to appropriately eliminate those free radicals that do damage and that is governed by genetics. And I look at the pathways and I just love it. I tell people that I've had, you know, a woman who came in with autoimmune conditions and we did all these steps without knowing our genetics. And then we reverse engineered it. And it was really telling why the steps that I chose based on our history and the symptoms she was having in some of the labs worked. And so that's how I'm able to reverse engineer. So you don't necessarily need it. And in fact, I wish we had a better way to affordably measure like which gene is actually expressing. I always tell people you want to combine symptoms plus labs along with the suspected action of what the gene might be doing rather than just looking at the genetics, which are worthless just alone. Do you look at any tests when it comes to oxidative stress or glutathione? I know like some organic acids tests that look at pyroglutamate and there's, you know, yep. some oxidative stress markers as well on the Dutch test. If you're familiar with the Dutch test, yep. they have the little organic acids section too that has an oxidative stress marker, the pyroglutamate. Yeah. So pyroglutamate, what Dr. Eric's referring to is it looks at your need for glutathione and it's presuming that your levels of oxidative stress are high. And on the Dutch test, I like one of the ones that you should pay real close attention to is it looks at damage to our DNA and that marker is called 8-hydroxydeoxyguanosine. So 8-O-H-D-G abbreviation. That's not important, but if you have DNA damage that's present, then you better say, what is driving that? Is it stress? Is it toxins? Is it lack of sleep? Is it lack of nutrients? Is it inappropriate diet, dysbiosis? I mean, you just run the list and you maximize as much as you can. The other market I'll, uh, marker I'll look at is, um, you can see it on a neutral like lipid peroxidation. So it's damage to the lipids in the body. I look at oxidized LDL, so which is the bad cholesterol. So you not only have to have an elevation of bad cholesterol, a portion of that has to be in small particles. And I always say the small particles stick. And then a portion of that is a damage. That's that perfect storm. If you've got elevation, a lot of small particles and they're damaged, then that's the storm for forming plaque and having that plaque rupture. Think about heart attack, stroke, et cetera. And so I've had people come back with high levels. I'm still looking at what's causing it. There's ways that I'll mop that up, so to speak. So there's various things I give if I don't know their genetics. 
I'll use molecular hydrogen and that usually will lower it nicely. And then while we figure out, I always say, we have to figure out where this is coming from or we'll never be able to stop it, but I'm going to protect your tissues by giving it this. Now, if I know their genetics, then I'll say, hey, is it a breakdown of that superoxide free radical? And do we need to give you an enzyme called SOD, which breaks that down? To hydrogen peroxide, is it that is broken down to hydrogen peroxide, but you can't clear it through your glutathione system through another enzyme called catalase? So I look at the whole big picture, but if I don't know molecular hydrogen has worked wonders, I don't know about your patients, but I can lower it in about three months. And it gives me time to say, what's the source? And that's the most important question to ask. What's the source? Why is it happening to begin with? Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, if you see any of these markers out of range, you want to know why and not just give the person a supplement. I mean, again, on a short-term basis, temporary basis, it might be important, but you don't want the person to just take, you know, whether it's glutathione or molecular oxygen on a permanent basis. Ideally, you want to try to find the cause of the problem. And then again, I guess that ties into the genetics again, because sometimes we just have the genetic variations, you know, those polymorphisms where someone might need to take some support. So you mentioned a short while ago that you do take, you know, a little bit of glutathione every single day, a small amount, just because of the two genes that you're missing. And so because of this, do you recommend genetic testing to pretty much all of your patients? I recommend it to definitely the chronically sick and those that really want to mitigate any long-term risk. So the two varieties. Now, Some people aren't interested and they have youth on their side. So those in their 20s and 30s may not need it or may not want to know it. So then we really hit the epigenetics, diet, lifestyle. What are their, and sometimes just by their markers, I can tell. So let me give you a really simple example of genes. So when we're trying to get someone's vitamin D levels up, so they have proper immune function, the range can be a couple thousand IUs a day to 10,000 plus. And those people that are needing 10,000 plus typically have genetic mutations in either the way they're converting or they're converting with their vitamin D transport, et cetera. So they're going to have mutations and there's a whole host of genes that govern that. And so you don't need to know the genes. You just titrate their D that they're taking according to what their body is showing you that they need. And that varies. I always say in the winter, you're going to need a couple more thousand than you or more than you would in the summer. And I, so far to date, I've had one person and she was another practitioner have normal levels or optimal levels, we should say, without supplementation. And, but she lived in Austin, Texas. So I thought, well, she's getting sun And it was so odd. We were living in, you know, the Middle East and we were out in the sun all the time. That was the only activity you could really do when it was so hot was swim in the chilled pools. And all of us, me and my kids all were deficient despite the sun exposure. And so we all have those genetic mutations as well, ironically. And I've seen a pattern where some of my patients who have the chronic environmental illnesses, are missing the same two genes I am. And so I'm finding a pattern. And so I'm kind of starting to do some research on like, wow, is that why they're so sick from it? And that's why they succumb quicker. And I do talk about, we all have different detox buckets and some of it's genetics, some of it's the diet and lifestyle. And if yours is small, you're going to present being ill earlier in life. So in your twenties, And then if it's medium, maybe a little bit later. And then if it's large, you might be that one lucky person. And I've had one in a career of over 25 years in medicine where, you know, he's the Uncle Harry who smokes three packs a day. 
and then just dies quietly in their sleep and has no adverse outcome. But that's the rarity. And I wouldn't bank on, on that. So. Yeah. yeah, no, I agree. My Unfortunately, my mother smoked for like 40 years and she's still with us. She's 80 years old. No really bad damage and all that. I mean, you know, don't know still what the next five, 10 years will bring. But again, she stopped smoking like 10 years ago. So she's not still smoking, but she smoked since she was, I don't know, like, well, actually, anyway, so I'm trying to put the numbers together when she stopped smoking. But anyway, she was smoking for at least 40 years. And, you know, again, her genetics were kind to her <laughs> compared to others, but you just never know. And, you know, obviously she didn't know. She just was lucky with that. So, yeah, I agree. You just don't want to take the chance. And, you know, the good news, again, there is genetic testing for those who want to find out the information. And like you, I can't say I recommend it to most of my patients. You know, at this point, I'm still, I won't say new at it because I did years ago, the 23 Me. you know, that was around, you know, like six, seven years ago. And now they changed that since then. And that's intrigued me. And I have recommended some genetic testing. I'm just not at the point where I'm recommending it to most patients. But as you said, if someone's dealing with a lot of chronic health issues, that might be something to dive into and see, you know, especially if they can't tolerate, I'm sure you have people who just, and you mentioned this earlier, there are people that can't tolerate glutathione, but there's also people that seem like they can't tolerate anything, you know, just, and in that case is maybe it would be helpful to take a deeper dive into the genetics. Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, the two varieties, so that person who wants to mitigate any long-term risks, because I just shake my head and I'm not going to say it. I'm a firm believer, like your words, you know, your thoughts form your words and your words can change your life. So, but, you know, I shudder to think what would have happened had I not discovered this because the genes were kind of ominous and it really just explained, we'll have to do that another time, maybe over a nice dinner or something (laughs) when we're out socializing. But yeah, and so I like it yeah, for a variety of reasons. And you're right, it's not necessary in every single person. And to speak to your mom, if I may, for a minute, what's very interesting, she must have excellent genes because we started running an epigenetic test for aging. So it gives you your age based not on your biological age. So if someone's 50, but it measures what have your diet and lifestyle done to you? How old are you based on some of the markers in your body? And smoking is one of the ways that'll age you quicker than anything else, as you know, because it's creating the oxidative stress. So that speaks mountains to that. Maybe you have some really good genes, Dr. Osansky, if they were inherited, but that is one of the eight things that we would do to mitigate. And we just ran that test on me and my husband just to see where we're at. But the other thing that plays into it is sleep and stress. And so as you know, the past two and a half years have been a very interesting time for a lot of us. And I know that I've pulled out all stops and I laugh and I tell people, I'm like, yeah, when I'm stressed, I double down on the meditation. So it goes from that 15 to 30 minutes to, you know, get an hour in when I can. And it really does help me stay out of trouble is how I feel and how I recover. Yeah, that's awesome. No, I'm a big believer in mind, body medicine. And, you know, what I tell people for those who might be listening And, you know, I say this to patients as well. If someone's not in the routine, I say, just start with five minutes per day. Just get in that routine because Mm -hmm. I don't want them to think they have to do 30 minutes or an hour every single time. So if you could do five minutes per day, get in that routine. And then once you're in the routine, you could gradually increase. And then maybe some days during the week, maybe you will do it for 30 minutes or an hour. And then the other days you only do it for like five, 10 minutes. But Mm -hmm. it's really just with anything, getting into the routine. So I'm glad you mentioned that. 
I like her five minutes a day. <laughs> well, because everybody could do it. Everybody could find five minutes a day. I mean, I, I know there are some people that find the excuse that they can't do the five minutes a day, but those are the people who need it the most. <laughs> you know, the ones who can't find the time mm-hmm. to do at least five minutes, you know, they need to probably do again the 30 minutes per day, but at least start with that five minutes. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. I've started saying, what's my bare minimum of the things that keep fuel me? And I have a bare minimum for breath work and a bare minimum for exercise. And it's interesting that when you set that lower limit and you're successful, then you're able to increase it over time. And I found that sweet spot. And you're right. And another thing I will challenge people is like, when you wake up out of bed, you know, hopefully you're refreshed, but say that you don't have the time to even do five minutes, do 10 breaths before you even get out of bed. And I've trained so long on heart math is one of my favorite things. We teach every single person because the data is sound. And because I've seen people say they've meditated for 20 years and you look at their stress response and it's either in the gutter or through the roof and you say, well, it's not getting you out of fight or flight. So this is a tangible way to test. And after a while, you learn what breath pattern gets you out of flight or flight. So I can do that 10 breaths and know that for that 10 breaths, I'm out of fight or flight. And then periodically through the day at it, like think about when you're doing email, right? People breath hold. (laughs) That's not good. Not only for supplying oxygen and fueling your brain, but just for getting you out of fight or flight. Yeah, no, thanks for sharing that. Yeah, so if you can't find five minutes in the morning or at any time during the day, but especially, I agree, in the morning, it's nice to start out with the meditation or it doesn't have to be meditation, any type of mind-body medicine, any type of, you know, but like you said, just 10 deep breaths. And yeah, I just actually chatted with another practitioner during just another interview I just did about heart math. You know, we show, so she's a certified heart math teacher and all that. So. I've used the inner balance. I was telling her for many years too. So definitely support of heart math. So yeah, thanks for bringing that up. And is there anything else? I mean, you've shared so much great information, but is there anything else I should have asked you that I didn't ask you or anything that you'd like to share that? Yeah, I'm going to share three things that keep coming up when I talk to people who are thinking about investing in their health. And, you know, one is to say to a lot of people say, oh, I'm just going to DIY it. And really to set a time frame. So maybe that'll work in a portion, but to find that guide, and it doesn't have to be me or you, but to find a guide that you trust because it's going to take you from point A to Z much, much quicker. Now, if someone would have told me, so my original guide led me on the diet lifestyle, but he didn't really know all the rest of that. But if someone had told me, hey, I'm going to give you exactly what you want and get you better from this acute illness, and then I'm going to also give you everything you need, I would have said, all right, I'm all in. Tell me, what is it that I need that I'm not aware of? So sometimes what you don't know, you know, can hurt you. So find that guide, especially if you've tried to DIY it yourself. So I've had people that go away and, and that if you're having such significant symptoms, and I view that as any level of fatigue, because most people are fatigued and have acclimated to a lower level of energy and they don't realize it. So I'll say that again. Most people have acclimated to a lower level of energy and are already fatigued. So by the time you actually feel it, you're really behind the eight ball. That means there's some kind of dysfunction going on with that detox that's affecting whether it's your thyroid or your brain or your joints. And so if you've got that, if you've got any where you walk into a room, you don't remember things, those are serious signs or pain of any sort that seems to not respond to usual measures that says, hey, there's mitochondrial dysfunction. And that that means there's a lot of toxic or oxidative stress going on. And you need to figure that out before it gets into 
a serious state. And it's just mind blowing to me because I know I can afford a help and reversal for people. And when they say, oh, no, that's okay. I'll deal with it in two years or something. If you're at that point, you don't have two years to wait. You really don't. And I only say that kindly and lovingly because I see people on the other end of the spectrum where they're so far gone. And then it's a real challenge to recover what little you can and then maintain them there. And had they come in even that six months prior, one year prior. So yeah, just to take some of those symptoms that people tend to write off as more serious because they are. Yeah. Thank you so much, Dr. Rika. And where can people find out more about you? Yeah. So the main source right now, so is drrika.com and I'm sure you'll have that link, but it's drrajka.com. And that kind of gives a wide variety of info. We have an energy quiz on there. People can take and resources. I do have a professional Facebook page and Instagram. That's also at D-R-R-A-J-K-A. So everything's beyond that thing. We're getting a little more up there with reels and lives. And, you know, as you know, when we're busy clinicians, that goes in waves, but definitely like speaking on shows like yours and podcasts because it's empowering to be able to convey the information so they can see people's minds as to the possibility of how well they can feel. All right. Thank you. And I will definitely make sure to include the links in the show notes. Thank you so much for doing this interview, Dr. Rika. You know, appreciate you sharing your knowledge and expertise, not only just to the genetics of detoxification, but again, you shared so much more of the, again, oxidative stress, which I know ties into that, but sharing your story about how your gallbladder getting removed and how you support it. And anyway, just a wealth of knowledge. So again, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Save My Thyroid podcast. If you haven't done so already, make sure you hit subscribe to stay up to date on the latest thyroid health-related topics. And to get your free thyroid and immune health restoration action points checklist, visit SaveMyThyroidChecklist.com. Thanks so much for tuning in. I really enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Rika, as I honestly was concerned that you would go too deep into the genetics and that a lot of the listeners would be lost and confused but I'm thankful that she made it very easy to understand. During the episode, I also mentioned how my mother smoked for about 40 years, and yet she's still alive and kicking at 80, and overall she's doing pretty good. Unfortunately, she smoked in the house all the time while I was growing up, and when combined with eating crappy food and taking a decent amount of antibiotics, it's not a surprise that I developed Graves' disease. Now, to be fair, when I was a young adult and moved out of my parents' home, I could have taken charge of my health and possibly even prevented myself from developing Graves' disease if I would have eaten better and incorporated other lifestyle factors. But just as is the case with many others who develop Graves' disease or Hashimoto's thyroiditis, it's a learning experience. And I realize that some people listening to this had a much healthier childhood than I did, yet still developed a thyroid or autoimmune thyroid condition. So there are a few different reasons why people develop these and other health conditions, as without question, one's genetics play a role, but our environment when growing up is also important, as well as our environment as an adult. And the truth is that there is no way of knowing whether or not I would have developed Graves' disease if my mother didn't smoke and if I ate healthier and didn't take antibiotics as a child and teenager. I commonly talk about how stress was a big factor, and maybe this would have been enough to trigger my Graves' disease condition even if I was brought up healthier. The point behind this rant is that if you're wondering why you developed your condition, you very well might never know the reason, but either way, you need to move forward and do everything you can to improve your health from this point forward. 
because it's not just about reversing your thyroid or autoimmune thyroid condition as you want to prevent other health issues from developing in the future, including cancer, as well as other autoimmune conditions. I want to let you know about a product called Hepatomune Supreme, which is a unique supplement that has a rare combination of N-acetylcysteine, also known as NAC, milk thistle, and schisandra to support the liver. And it also has a few mushrooms that can help support the immune system, including cordyceps, which has both immune modulating and adaptogenic properties and is great for those with Graves' disease and Hashimoto's. To learn more about Hepatomune Supreme, visit SaveMyThyroid.com forward slash liver support.